You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. This is episode 158. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Uma Naido. Dr. Uma Naido is a Harvard nutritional psychiatrist, professional chef, and best-selling author. Dr. Naido founded and directs the first hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the U.S. She's the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and is the director of nutritional psychiatry at the Massachusetts General Hospital Academy, whilst also serving on the faculty at the Harvard Medical School. Uh, Dr. Nido was considered Harvard's mood food expert and has been featured in notable publications such as the Wall Street Journal. So today we are discussing Dr. Nido's book, The Food Mood Connection. And in today's conversation, we discuss how Uma's South Asian background impacted how she approaches uh, traditional medicine the best advice that she's ever received, how the foods that we eat affect our brain and our mood, the diets followed by the longest living people, Uma's thoughts on the carnivore diet, the best foods for your mental health, the worst foods for your mental health, the foods to avoid in your diet, and much, much more. I loved speaking to Dr. Nido. It was such a pleasure. She is a real lovely woman and a fantastic, fantastic academic and researcher and practitioner. It was a real pleasure. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the fantastic Dr. Uma Nido. I was really interested at the start of the book uh, you sort of paid tribute to your family members and you said that your mother gave you the most important piece of advice in your life. Can you share this advice or is this a secret? No, it's not a secret. Everyone has asked about it. You know, it's interesting. My mum was my uh, was a professor. She's a double-bordered physician, um, raised a family of four children, by the way, uh, with my dad and is an amazing human being. But she did give me the best piece of advice. And I think it was kind of mom, mother's intu- intuition. She was my husband's professor before he and I met at medical school. And he was ahead of me in medical school. And um, I guess he was in her tutorial group. And she was a very, very popular, uh, when she still torches, uh, re- retired now, but very, very popular uh, professor. And um, basically, um, she came home one day and she said, you know, I met this young man in my in my tutorial group. Do you know him? I said, mom, like, it's such a huge place. Like, how am I going to know him? And she was like, no, I, re- I really think you should try to meet him. He's a very nice young man. I, I think the two of you would get, she said it very sort of, you know, because she knew if she said, oh, I think you should just like go out and date him or something. I wouldn't listen. 
and it really it planted the seed in my head and eventually when he and I did meet we we did get along very well and so you know I guess it was just her insight into whatever she saw in him and by the way they still like they're still great friends they have longer conversations sometimes than I do so it's it's a wonderful relationship you talk in the book that you come from a South Asian background <laughs> now, so obviously, so you've transitioned, you're a Harvard psychiatrist, as we sort of talked about. Um, so I would love to know, how did your Eastern roots uh, kind of like impact how you approach medicine today? Absolutely. I think that's a great question, because, you know, I grew up in a very large family and um, much it was an interesting mix, as I think back, because it was a very, uh, really full of love, full of nurturance, full of food, nutrition, and conversation. Um, and, <clears throat> but, but it was also, you know, a family of very many physicians, so allopathic medical doctors and a couple of Ayurvedic pr practitioners. So we grew up uh, with a lot of love, and I remember that very fondly, obviously influenced my relationship with food. And I kind of skipped out of um, play school, uh, nursery school, as it's, I think, called in the UK, um, to spend time with my grandmother. So my mom was in medical school when I was born. And um, so I would hang out with my grandma. And she's, she's the, one, uh, the grandma to whom the book was dedicated. And uh, we would, you know, pick vegetables in the garden. She would prepare food. I was too little to cook or anything like that. But I would watch her and I would be around that all the time. So it really came from a very natural place. Uh, but there was also meditation, mindfulness. Um, you know, the practice of yoga in family members. So, so it was, I grew up around all of this. And I felt that when I did start studying, not just medical school, but when I began my path in psychiatry, I felt that there needed to be more solutions. That of course, medications have been life-saving to the lives of many of my patients and therapies are extremely important, but they needed to be a little bit more. I, I don't think that one can silo these different methods of helping people. And that's when nutrition began to fulfill a very big part of the conversation for me. So it really did stem from how I grew up um, and those influences. But I brought that with me, um, you know, because there was a time and certainly in the, in the U.S. and I'm sure in the U.K. when mindfulness, meditation, yoga were not part of the everyday conversation. Now, you know, is a yoga studio at every corner. This, it's very much a part of how people think, but it wasn't always the case. And um, for me, adding that conversation around nutrition when I spoke with individuals seemed to make sense because how can you take a medication that has potential side effects while it could save you, help your depression or help your severe symptoms, but also how, how can you combat that? And um, you know, I, thought, I, I felt it was important. The microphone on your um, oh, thing, it's it? like rubbing yeah. against your top. Okay. Is that okay? okay? So, sorry. Yeah, I can hold it. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I can hold it. Yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah, so I would love to just pick up on what you said there. This is what I'm really interested in because in the West, in the case of what we're talking about today, so if like mental health, for instance, people often think about, uh, say, if you're suffering from depression, you might take SSRIs, you might go and get behavioral therapy. Yeah. But very, but I don't know too many people in this thing that ever think about nutritional psychiatry as food, as a you know as a sort of antidote to that. So I wonder, could you sort of break down for our audience? I, I love this. All I have to say, could you talk about you know just the sort of what nutritional psychiatry is, you know, and I guess you know sort of what why you wrote the book in essence. Absolutely. So I I wrote the book. Um, 
Well, let me let me start at, uh, start with what nutritional psychiatry is, and I'll I'll explain how I wrote the book. Um, it is a nascent field in that it's term a terminology that is hasn't been used for a long time, but in truth. Research of nutrients in mental health has gone on for decades. In fact, my mentors at Mass General Hospital in Boston did some of the seminal research studies on <clears throat> methylfolate, on uh, omega-3 fatty acids, um, trials of magnesium and others. Mm. Vitamin B has been studied, vi sorry, vitamin D has been studied, folate, um, you know, people have spoken about, uh, you know, folate and leafy greens for a long time, but people haven't really put it together in that way. So all of these independent studies looked at one nutrient in, uh, in, in a study and, you know, linked it to a mental health condition. I feel that what nutritional psychiatry has done, and I come from a clinical perspective and a clinical science perspective, um, is really putting it together with how you can implement that information and help people. Is it a replacement for medication or treatment? Absolutely not. It is really meant to support and be alongside everything else you are doing. That being said, Joe, there are some individuals who simply do not fall into a category of mental health symptoms. There's a classification of ICD that I think is used in Europe and the UK, and um, there's the DSM-5 used mm. in the US. Much of that, I have to say, is insurance-based in terms of how doctors bill in the hospitals. And I really don't agree with all of the ways that the symptoms are described because psychiatry and mental health does not have a tissue diagnosis, a blood test, a biopsy, or, you know, for example, you have a bad cough and you have, uh, a, a, your doctor can do a sputum sample, or you have a severe fever, your, your doctor can do a blood culture. Um, psychiatry doesn't have that. We have, you know, for example, my colleague, uh, Dr. Daniel Amen has done amazing MRI imaging studies and really shown science behind what he speaks about. But for the DSM-5 classification, there are many people who are suffering that don't fall into those checkboxes. And that's where nutritional psychiatry can be extremely helpful because they can use nutrition as an additional tool in their toolkit to improve how they're feeling. And in the patients that I've seen, it has been helpful in that way. It has also been helpful in individuals who are on medication and want to modulate side effects that they may be experiencing or really improve how they are feeling emotionally. Because research has also shown that even on medications, there's sometimes only 50% of individuals who improve. Um, which, which, is, which is concerning, you know, and, and, and I see that clinically as well. Not everyone gets better on a medication. And, uh, you know, I think that we really try to be careful about prescribing medications. I am a conservative prescriber. So before I add on a second medication, I'm extremely cautious because I also know there are potential metabolic side effects. There are potential other side effects of that. Um, and, and, I, and this brings me to say that, you know, I feel that what my book does is it looks at the most current research um, that we have. And since the book was published, there's obviously more updated research. Things in nutritional science evolve all the time. So I never sort of say, oh, it's only this way because things change and you've got to be open as a scientist to incorporating new information. Um, but I had been practicing this way for some time and blogging for Harvard Health Publications and always been interested in the gut microbiome. 
And one of these articles, um, because of that, I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal for a, a very a wonderful article that was published on a weekend uh, called Feed Your Head. And this was a few years back. And unbeknownst to me, that article went viral. And I had publishers and agents reach out to me um, saying, you know, you have a book here, you, you really should be writing about this. And it hadn't occurred to me because I had been doing the work clinically, <laughs> reading the research, updating information that I had all on my own for my, my clinical work. And, and that's really how the book was born. And, you know, it, it was great that someone else could see the value in bringing that message forward. Because sometimes as a clinical doctor and as a clinical scientist, you're busy, you're busy doing your work, you know, and you don't realize there's, there's more value to it. And I think that, that for me, a special part of bringing this book forward has really been sharing it with a wider audience and, um, and, and not necessarily as treatment, but really as a method that people can think about. I don't want to get too off track by you, but something you just said that really interested in, interested me. You mentioned that you know you are a um, a conservative prescriber of medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about in the book how you actually had a cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Now, I would love to know as a psychiatrist yourself, what was it like taking medication for say cancer when you may be aware of the side effects of these things? It was very scary. And, you know, and, and by conservative, I should just qualify that. What I mean is I, I always look at the whole person. So mm. I use a holistic, integrated and functional approach to psychiatry, which I really devised through learning and education and understanding the human body. But feeling that, you know, um, meditation, mindfulness, it doesn't have to be a religious form of meditation. It can just be a form of mindfulness. Even breath work can help panic, can help anxiety. Can it take it all away? Not necessarily, but it can be an adjunctive treatment. So that's what I mean. It's not just medications. But um, it was one of the scariest times of my life because I was otherwise healthy. And I think the frightening part about being in the role of a patient is that you really realize as a doctor that you don't have control over Mm. what, I mean, you know, you of course make a decision that you're going to accept medications and treatment, but you, you don't, you realize that it's, you're out of the driver's seat. You know, the prescription pad is a very powerful tool and I think it should be handled by physicians with respect because whatever we prescribe does have an impact on people's lives, even if it's a medication for hypertension or cholesterol. So um, that was frightening for me, but it also taught me a lot. It it really grounded me in my work in nutritional psychiatry, to be honest, because I went from uh, finding a lump to actual treatment within a very short time. I mean, it flew by, it was like within seven days. And that's, you know, being blessed by having access to excellent medical care for which I feel very fortunate. And my mind hadn't caught up with my body. So on the day of my first treatment, I was frightened. You know, I was very worried. Everyone in my family was worried. They were long distance and it, it was a frightening time. And part of it, the fear was came from knowing the side effects. Not, not that, you know, I'm not, not afraid of a shot or needle or anything like that, but I'm, I was afraid of the side effects. And I, I'm not generally an anxious person, so that was new for me. And I really had to face that. And it was a very seminal moment, which I speak about the book that switched that sort of the light bulb went on for me. You know, I was talking to people about this all the time. I was generally eating healthy. Everyone of us can up our game. But, you know, I was generally eating healthy. And I thought, well, you know, why, why am I not using this on myself right now when I'm feeling so anxious? Um, And part of the reason it hadn't occurred to me was because all of this diagnostic process was going on and my emotional self hadn't really caught up. You know, my my physical body was going through 
test after test after biopsy and the rest of me hadn't caught up. So um, that was important. And I feel like it gave me a, a much healthier respect for uh, even um, uh, even being even more careful about when I prescribe something. And that's what I mean by being conservative. I'm thoughtful about it. Um, yeah, I love that. And just on that, if I could just pull that thread slightly, sure. did um, that sort of cancer diagnosis, that sort of, you know, quite, a, I suppose, a, you know, a sort of brush with death, a, a deadly disease, did that sort of give you any philosophical insights? Did it give you sort of any clarity in how you were going to approach your life after? It did, actually. It, it, it really, um, it made me feel so much more grounded in enjoying the moments of life, take, really taking them in because as a busy doctor and, you know, studying and writing, all doing all of these things, um, sometimes we, we get ahead of ourselves. And, you know, I, I've always loved cooking. Cooking was a very mindful space for me. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I, the best way to say it is I, I learned again to stop and think and to realize that it, it wasn't necessarily uh, about the sprint, but that life was a marathon in the sense that I just needed to absorb the important moments and take that in and be, you know, feel blessed that I had access to this kind of care, that I had such wonderful doctors who took care of me. I, I just, you know, I, I really grounded um it, 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 it really grounded me in what was important in life. So, I it, love it, you it, know, yeah. it, it, wasn't, it was, you know, I wouldn't wish that upon anyone, but it, it helped me in a certain way as well. Yeah, I can totally imagine. And this is what I really like about your work is that um, I think that, you know, the sort of approach to health, uh, I like that you have a sort of yin and a yang method. The yang is kind of the, you know, it's the five or 600 or 700 references or whatever the crazy amount is in the book you know, it's the sleep, it's the exercise, but it's also the sort of, the other side is the joy, it's the uh, passion, it's the purpose, which I think you really have uh, included in this book. So I want to commend you. you for that. My pleasure. So I would love to sort of um, pick up now on just back into this book. So you talk in the start of the book about the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So for the person listening to this, that might be thinking, okay, well, how can the food which I'm eating be sort of effect in my mental health. Could you talk about that gut-brain connection, please? Absolutely. So, you know, people don't normally associate these organs of the body because they're far apart, but it turns out that the gut and brain in the embryo, as our bodies are developing, um, develop from exact the exact same cells and they divide up and they form these organs. So just from that, you realize there's a connection then throughout life, they are connected by the 10th cranial nerve, which is the vagus nerve, and that connects the brain to the gut. And I like to call it a two-way superhighway um, because it is working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, conducting chemical messages back and forth from the gut to the brain and the brain to the gut. So it's bi-directional flow, and that's also important to understand the connection. Um, and then the two other facts I feel are important for here now are that, you know, you mentioned SSRI medications earlier. Well, they work on serotonin and more than 90% of the serotonin receptors are in the gut. Mm -hmm. And the gut for purposes of the pandemic really has most of the immune system. There's a very large component of the immune system in the gut. So how we eat and when we understand that as our food gets digested, it comes in contact 
with the gut and it is exposed to the fact that there's this connection, we realize that what we eat and the breakdown products you know, start to impact through the gut microbiome, which is that, you know, hundred odd trillion bacteria that live there. But it's not just bacteria, I call them microbes because there's about five different kinds of organisms. Um, they are impacted and you can either nurture those guys or you can, you can harm them. So if you nurture them, you know, you're feeding them fiber and lots of veggies and appropriate amounts of fruit and, and, you know, sources of fiber, which you really get from plant sources. You can't get it from animal and seafood. So nuts and seeds count healthy whole grains. If you eat them all count towards nurturing the gut microbiome. But if you, you're feeding those guys down there, if you're feeding them, you know, fast foods and junk foods and processed and ultra processed foods and trans fats, then what happens is the, mad, the bad microbes take over. They get fed and they overcome the good microbes. And that's, when, that's really the setting of starting to develop inflammation in the gut and what ultimately leads to conditions that people hear about called leaky gut, which is intestinal permeability. You know, the gut lining is a single cell thin. It's very, very delicate. So it's, it's important to understand that we need to take care of it. So if I put a piece of food into my mouth, how quickly can, uh, how quickly will that affect the bacteria within my gut? So studies, uh, studies, research studies have shown that in a 24 hour period, what you eat, so whether it be a healthy choice or an unhealthy choice, they start to impact the gut bacteria in that 24 hour period. Wow. You don't necessarily experience it that way. So in your body, you don't necessarily feel the difference. Um, but it starts to impact the bacteria. So if you continue on that either healthy or unhealthy diet, over time, you will start to either set up inflammation or if you're embracing a healthier diet, maybe you have some gut healing that needs to happen that you will see over time. But research has shown that those, back, those, those bugs are impacted immediately within 24 hours. So it's, it's important to pay attention, to, to be mindful about the choices we make. And it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not easy to, to be consistent about that. Yeah. And I assume then that this is a two way street. If I put, as you mentioned, you know, whole foods, plant based products into my system, then that's feeding the good guys. But on the other hand, then I can also go the other way and feed the bad guys. That's it. Exactly. So if you're getting, you know, uh, fast food every day, which is highly processed, um, you know, uses usually vegetable oils, which are cheaper, less expensive, which is why they're used in those restaurants. And, you know, that's uh, and Things like French fries from fast food places have added sugars in them. You don't taste it, but there are actually a lot of research and development goes into making them hyper palatable. That's why, you know, when you go to a fast food restaurant in the U.S., it's hard not to upsize. And then when you buy the larger size, it's hard not to complete it. It's because it's hyper palatable. It's been tested to be, be that way. One of the ways they do that is with sugar. You don't taste it, but it's there. So, you know, you think about the number of unhealthy ingredients that get taken in, you know, the bad bugs in your gut are like thriving. They're like, yeah, you know, that's what I want to eat. So they start taking over and, you know, it's, it's, it's about keeping that balance. And one thing which I noticed in the book is that my sort of uh, the scourge of my health habits, I would say, I'm, you know, I'm reasonably happy with it, but the one thing which I'm bad at is I love drinking diet Coke. Right. <laughs> and I noticed that in there, you talk about artificial sweeteners. Yeah. And for me, I was like, oh, no, I was like, I wish I hadn't read this, but I'm glad I did. So could you talk about sort of artificial sweeteners and the sort of damaging effect that these could have? 
Essentially, the, the, the short answer is that they tend to be disruptors in that gut, in the gut. And that is the easiest way to understand them. There are very specific mechanisms that I go into in the book. So, so what has happened is that the research has shown that artificial sweeteners drive and worsen some symptoms of mental health. One of them is anxiety. Um, and, you know, it's in, and, and there are several other conditions. But if you think about it and, and a person is say, comes to me and says, you know, I'm trying to come off sugar and I'm really worried that I'm eating too many cakes and pastries um, and pies and, you know, uh, sweets and candies. Um, and, I, and I'm trying to get better. Many people, uh, not necessarily in your situation, Joe, but many people will say, well, I'm going to give up sugar. So I'm going to go to sugar-free items. Well, the sugar-free items, they don't have added or refined sugars, but they have a form of sweetener, right? Mm. And then, and, and the, what happens is individuals who are suffering with anxiety can actually become worse. And so, you know, my, my advice to people is, um, you know, we talked about the joy of food. If that brings you joy, then just slowly try to maybe cut back a little bit, you know, any, I, this, this is my philosophy. I feel like change cannot be drastic because if I said to you, give up these 10 things today, if not, you will, you know, something bad will happen. It doesn't help people. Firstly, it makes them anxious. Secondly, they can't accomplish 10 things in a single day. We have busy lives. Life is challenging enough right now without having to do that. But slow and steady, healthy habit change does work. And it does stick. So if someone is patient with themselves and they say, hey, you know, from six Diet Cokes, I'm going to start cutting back. And, you know, I might still enjoy it a few times a day, but I'm not having a ton of it. And I'm being careful about the rest of my diet. It's not, you know, I, I, I don't, I try not to demonize ingredients. And the reason I don't is because everyone needs a different diet. And someone might come into my office and uh, my virtual office now and have a carnivore diet. Someone else may be vegan, you know, and I've got to figure out and meet them where they're at in terms of, well, here's where we can tweak your diet for your better mental well-being. That's my role. You know, as a nutritional psychiatrist, that's what I'm there to do. I'm really not there to say, hey, you know, you need to give this up and you need to eat more of that. Um, so it doesn't really matter personally what I do, but I'm sharing the science and what, what I know um, that could be helpful to them. And I try to give them updated pointers on, on what could be, what could be different. Um, so I, you know, I, I really shy away from giving people explicit response, explicit instructions, because I find that it doesn't stick in my clinical experience. It just doesn't stick. And people then sway back to what they were doing before. So. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose the best diet is the one that someone could stick to, right? So that has healthy options in it, you know. Like, I, I, yeah, I'll give, I'll give you an, an example. This I did an interview with uh, William Lee. And yes, I call it, yeah. yeah. He's a yeah. Great, great man. I interviewed yes. him about a year ago, and I remember him uh, himself telling me that I should switch to dark chocolate. And, uh, and after go. it become an absolute staple in my diet, and, and I, I have it every day. I'm a big fan. So, so I would dark just... chocolate is a is a great ingredient. The the darker the better. Um, you know, more than seventy percent. Look for the word cacao on the label. Make sure it's unsweetened. Uh, it actually contains serotonin. So there's help right there. So a little piece of dark chocolate. I'm not saying it's replacing your medication if you're taking <laughs> medication, but it does it does help. It eases anxiety, you know, and the serotonin, as you know, is associated with both mood and anxiety in those SSRIs. So um, plus there's magnesium, it's it's fermented, so it's a probiotic. It's it's a great it's a great food, one of my favorites. Yes, well, I, I find that amazing. Um, so I suppose 
if we sort of start off with um, just on this this sort of thing, so we just looked at artificial sweeteners. We've talked about the the greatness uh, of dark chocolate. The darker, <laughs> the better. So I wonder, could we jump into so perhaps the downstream effects of the foods which could be dulling um, or perhaps making our mental health worse? The foods or food groups? Could we go there? Sure. So, you know, we, we would start off with processed and unprocessed foods. Um, unfortunately, cereals, for example, are processed, right? They, yeah. they go through a process of extrusion. So even though they may have labels that are healthy and contain some healthy ingredients, just bear that in mind. You don't have to give that up today, but just look at the label, I would encourage you. So processed and ultra-processed foods just contain added fillers, stabilizers, colorants, dyes, ingredients, preservatives that are not great for our body and our mind. So I would be, I would, if you, you have a lot of packaged foods in your home, then think about cutting back on those. Um, trans fats have been associated in studies with increased aggression. So trans fats and foods are something you should be careful about. Um, you know, artificial sweetness is another group. Artificial and um, added and refined sugars is another. So my philosophy around that is eat the orange and skip the store-bought orange juice because that <laughs> lacks the fiber. Even if the label says fiber, it's much less than an actual orange. Uh, lacks the fiber and the nutrients and vitamins. All of those are usually added back in the processing. Plus, and most importantly, it has a ton of added sugar. So just eat the orange. Um, you know, I, I prefer, it's all eat your berries, don't drink your berries. That's, you know, another way to think about it. So um, those are, you know, those are some of the, 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 the big groups to be careful about. Um, and there are specific things such as, you know, nitrates in processed meats worsen depression. So just be quite careful if you're struggling with, say, the, you know, with seasonal affective disorder when it's much darker at this time of year in the north, in the, in the north um, and your days are shorter with less light, you know, you may be careful, want to be careful about that type of thing because cutting back on say processed meats that have nitrates may help you over time. Yeah. And I love this. And I want to uh, pay a sort of shout out to one of my friends, Tim, who was also a medical doctor and he put okay. me on to uh, Michael Pollan. And one yes. of the things which which I love, um, which I feel you do a great job of in this book, is that you give sort of simple and digestible tips which are evidence-based. And one of the things which I got from Michael Pollan was sort of eating foods with less ingredients in. Mm -hmm. So, and foods that rot. I mean, because it's like, you know, this was something which I never really thought about. But for instance, meat is supposed to go off, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, if you're eating foods which don't rot, then mm -hmm. it's, it's probably not going to be good for your gut microbiome. So I wonder, do you have any sort of, you know, really simple digestible tips along that sort of realm? Sure. You know, some sort of low hanging fruit, which people could start to introduce. Absolutely. And the other category I should mention, which we talked about earlier was fried foods. Uh, oh yeah. We, yeah. we covered that um, because of the processed vegetable oils. That's, that's what I'm referring to. Um, so, you know, I, th I talk about pillars of mental health and I talk about some simple things that can get people started. One is the one I mentioned, you know, eat, eat the whole fruit, skip the store-bought juice. So eat your berries, don't drink your berries. Just this, the whole food is just much better for you. Um, I like the, the greener, the better. Um, so leafy greens contain folate. And I mentioned studies of methylfolate 
done many decades ago with folate is very important. And deficiencies of folate have been associated with worsening levels of anxiety, worsening levels of mood, fatigue, and, and things like that. So just having, um, you know, those different colors of leafy greens uh, in, in your salads is important. Then eat the rainbow. Mm. Um, the rainbow colors of vegetables actually does a few things. The different colors of plant polyphenols and antioxidants are great, uh, great for your brain, great for your gut, great for those microbes in the gut, but they're also anti-inflammatory. A lot of many different disease conditions are thought to be associated with inflammation these days. So just eating anti-inflammatory foods by those colorful vegetables on your plate are really important. Plus the different colors. So think about carotenoids and carrots or anthocyanins in um, things like eggplant. Those bring back biodiversity to the gut. So by eating all of those different ranges of foods, you're also helping those gut bugs to thrive. Um, you know, an, uh, another pillar of health is sort of a healthy gut is a happy mood. Uh, that's so similar applies to a healthy gut is a less stressed brain. And what I'm trying to convey there is that your gut health is important. It's very important to your mental health. And here's, here's the other thing is if you're taking care of your gut, your physical health is going to be better too. Again, because so many conditions now are associated with inflammation. And one of the ways that inflammation starts is right there in the gut. So those are a few things to get you started but i have uh, you know several pillars of sort of how really building around uh, nutritional psychiatry yeah i love this i love this so i want to pick up on something you said there so for instance um i've always said that for me i am diet agnostic if yeah. if if the literature, i say the same thing yeah, yeah if, if the literature told me to go and eat gravel or tarmac and, and it would <laughs> Let me live along. So I would, I would genuinely, I would do it. I don't care. But one of the things which, which we've had on the show is we've had people come on and talk about, for instance, the carnivore diet. Uh, we've had mm -hmm. some people who have been pro, some people very against. We've had, mm -hmm. you know, a sort of mixed thing to it. When, when you know, the literature points towards things like, as you say, eating uh, a diversity of plants, mm -hmm. uh, be, you know, being a predictor of a healthy microbiome. Mm -hmm. I would love to sort of get your thoughts on, say, for instance, the carnivore diet. And obviously it's anecdotal, uh, but I suppose people do comment on it saying that they do feel better. Is that the diet itself? Is that the elimination? I'd love to just get your thoughts on, on the carnivore diet. Sure. So I tend to, um, just as a person, I'm diagnostic as well. So we, we are similar that way. I, I tend to try not to go with extremes because in my clinical work, um, I find that when people omit an entire food group, unless they're allergic or they have, say, celiac disease and they cannot tolerate gluten, that's different. Yeah. Uh, but if there isn't a medical reason, they tend to not feel their best emotionally. Um, and this, of course, is not 100%. Some people may be feeling better, and I'm not denying that. But I, I prefer that they use a balanced diet of different things. So a balanced diet, you know, there's a tremendous amount of evidence against, um, uh, oh, let me put it to you this way. Every doctor or every influencer in the health space, author, whoever it might be, say they have an opinion of you need to have a vegan diet. There is enough science that can justify their position. There's also science that can justify a carnivore position. My feeling is that medicine is really moving towards a much more personalized space. Mm -hmm. um, and it's being practiced in some, some 
certainly in some places that way. And certainly as a nutritional psychiatrist, over the years I've done this, it has become more personalized because our gut microbiome is like a thumbprint. So the fact that a person feels better on a carnivore diet doesn't mean that the next person in my office, that it's going to work for them. For example, Joy, I um, early, uh, towards the fall of last year, I evaluated a mother and she brought in her teenage daughter with her to the appointment. They wanted to sit in together, which is fine. And fortuitously, they shared that the very same healthy food, one ingredient, had a different effect on each of them. Wow. Biologically related, healthy food, one could eat it, one could not. So that speaks to the uniqueness of a microbiome. And I've seen this clinically in many, many ways. So my position on it is we have to pay attention to body intelligence. We have to pay attention to what the evidence shows. Um, and I think that what the evidence has shown is that more and more often the Mediterranean diet has been associated, you know, and it has meats and vegetables in it. It has healthy fats. It has olive oil. It has, you know, beans, nuts, and seeds, legumes in it. All of that has been shown in larger clinical trials with an improvement of mood and depression, and it does not exclude, exclude animal products or seafood. So, you know, I think that that is a good middle ground for people. And then if they come to me and they say, I feel I need to be vegan. Well, then we have to supplement vitamin B12 and make sure their primary care physician knows that they're embarking on this. We need to get some levels done so that they're not missing some nutrients. Um, with someone who's carnivore, you know, I would, I would want them to eat some vegetables because guess what? The, that gut microbiome cannot be nurtured without fiber. And you can get fiber from, from you know, vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, um, uh, you know, healthy whole grains, lentils, legumes, that type of stuff. You cannot get it from just meat or seafood. So you've, you've got to, you know, every person has to have some balance of that. And perhaps that person might have less vegetables. But I would say, well, how are you going to nurture that gut microbiome? You know, what, what are you going to do to, to make sure that your gut does well? That being said, um, you know, I'm sure some people feel great on that diet. Just like some people have said to me, we don't have all of the evidence around um, fasting diets and fasting mimicking diets for mental health yet. But I've had patients come in and say, I feel I'm not hungry in the morning. So I have my first meal at 11 and I'm finding I'm, I have less brain fog. and My concentration is better. You know, right now that's anecdotal based on my clinical work, but I'm not denying that it's not true because they're reporting how they're feeling about it. So I, um, I, I practice personalized medicine. I used a holistic integrated and functional approach. And um, I try to find a solution for the individual depending on what they eat. And, you know, if they're eating something that I, I know is worsening their symptoms, I'll, I'm going to tell them. To me, that's, that's key in, in, in my niche work. It's if, if you are cooking and, you know, or eating processed vegetable oils all the time, you, all the time you're coming to me anxious. Well, maybe we need to cut back on that fast food and start cooking with some avocado or olive oil at home. You don't need much of it, including avocados for healthy fat and that type of thing. So that's a transition in, in what they're doing. I come out much more strongly about that, not demonizing those ingredients uh, as with artificial sweeteners, but saying, look, this is, you know, if you're coming to meet these symptoms, maybe we start to cut back on those first. That was an incredibly thoughtful answer. You mentioned the uh, the Mediterranean diet. We had uh, David Sinclair, another Harvard uh, researcher, mm -hmm. on the show, and he talked about this. I wonder, you know, for the people that haven't heard of this, could you just sort of double click on the 
a Mediterranean diet for us? Please, you sort of mentioned some of the ingredients. Could you just go sure. So, of, of course, it you know originates from from the Mediterranean region, and it really is. It's sort of a balanced a balance of vegetables, uh, fruit, healthy fats like olive oil, avocado, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes. Um, uh, you know, they like seafood. Um, in in the Mediterranean diet, I think they talk more about sort of say lean poultry, and you know, occasional uh, occasional red meat and that type of thing. I personally think that some of the science around that has evolved a little bit, um, where you know there's less a concern now about red meat in the way that there was years ago. Um, you know, certainly if you have a different piece of, of poultry, you know, there's nothing necessarily bad with that. I'm much more concerned about the source of the beef. You know, grass-fed is going to be more important. Uh, Pasture-raised uh, poultry and that type of stuff, um, you know, all of that becomes a little bit more important. So the quality of the ingredient, um, but essentially the Mediterranean diet is an abundance of fruit, vegetables, legumes, nuts, healthy olive oil, um, and then uh, lean meats. I love that. I love that. So in terms of the foods for say mental health for great mm -hmm. mental health mm -hmm. um i know you mentioned in in the in the book one of my favorite foods blueberries right uh, could you give us perhaps a maybe three foods for great mental health so i think that you know it's so certainly blueberries is is, is a great way to start um, i'd like people to think about this in terms of those pillars or categories i like them to think about the foods they may not be aware that could be helpful like prebiotic foods prebiotic foods are foods like beans oats bananas berries that's where the berries come in or think allium family onions garlic leeks um, asparagus um, those types of foods bring rich fiber to those gut microbes and they call prebiotic foods. So try to include those in your diet. So that's one category. Then it's fermented foods. So fermented foods could be uh, miso, sauerkraut, kefir, kimchi, kombucha, um, you know, buttermilk, things like that. Um, but, you know, it could be yogurt. So yogurt has uh, dairy and non-dairy yogurt. I just say have the plain form, add your own fruit, because if not, you're adding a ton of sugar and just a, a half a cup of a yogurt bought in the supermarket can have like six teaspoons of added sugar. So buy the plain version and add your own berries and sprinkle on some cinnamon. So fermented foods and, and those probiotic rich foods uh, are important. Um, and yeah, so, so that's, and then healthy fats are important. So olive oil, certain forms, certain nuts are great. Um, and then omega-3 fatty acids. If you're plant-based, you can get those from chia seeds, flax seeds, sea vegetables, and more. But if you eat seafood, you can get them from things like salmon. So, you know, those are, those are some, um, some categories to get you started. And a very big category that I don't want people to forget is spices, because yes. spices have an amazing health benefit. And they are calorie-free, salt-free, and sugar-free. And a small bottle that, you know, may be a little bit expensive on, if you buy the organic version, it might be pricey, but it's going to last you a year. So I would rather you invest some time in spices like turmeric with a pinch of black pepper. The paprina and black pepper makes the uh, curcumin in turmeric 
almost 2,000, actually 2,000 times more bioavailable to your body and your brain. So that's an easy thing. You can add a quarter teaspoon of turmeric and a pinch of black pepper to a tea, a super smoothie, if you don't cook. And if you cook, then add it to whatever it is you're making. And you can even add more than that. Uh, saffron has been associated with multiple clinical trials improving mood. Um, saffron is an expensive spice. You don't use a lot of it when you cook. So that's one of the places where I say, you know, speak to your doctor about a good supplement uh, if you'd like to like to go in that direction. So those are just some things to get people started. But as you know, in the book, it's broken down into chapters and there's a list of foods to embrace, which is always longer than the foods to avoid. So you always have more options that you can you can go to. Yeah. And I just want to say this book is really, really uh, well constructed. How, how many references did you include in this book? So I, I, re I read and reviewed about 800 and we included uh, more than 550 in the book. And part of the reason for that is we wanted two things. Uh, Manage and I had a good conversation about it. We really agreed that this is a book that brought together the research evidence with the clinical background that I have as a clinical scientist and clinician. And that was important for people to make it digestible, you know, pardon the pun, but to make it that, that people could read it and make changes um, and not use it as a textbook. You know, I am writing the textbook, but that's a separate project. And that's also highly referenced, but, you know, it's for a different audience. So it's really to make, to, to make it that people could read the evidence, understanding that nutritional science changes all the time, understanding that you know um, my position on certain ingredients would have changed over time because, because of the evidence, but that it's a good guide to get people started. There's nothing, uh, and, and we use Instagram and social media all the time to update people. So from the 700, 800, we whittled it down to just over 550 in the book so that you could read about say the gut brain romance chapter and then look up references there to really understand the science behind the gut-brain axis, the vagus nerve, and all of that. That was the purpose, so that people could uh, could see it was there and they could look it up if they were interested. I love that. I love that. Uh, was there a particular yeah. study which uh, you which will stick out to you from the book, or a series of studies, or was there just you know a particular experiment which you sort of looked over the literature and you said I, I have to include it? Is there anyone in particular? Sure, there's an interesting one. And, and this is, you know, in, in other ways, uh, these fecal transplants have been done. So, so it, was, it was a study, an animal study. But here's where I think animal studies are really important to understand in the medical literature. Um, when you look at an animal study, it doesn't mean that that's going to translate to human and say, if you do this, you're definitely going to be cured. But the difference, Joe, is that with food, I'm not suggesting or giving you a guideline of something that's going to harm you. You could eat less of it unless you have, say, a condition like celiac disease or, say, a seafood allergy, then you can't eat it. But if it's food, it's a general guideline that you can, my, my, my feeling is why not try it if it could improve your mental well-being. But this particular study was really done with mice. Um, and what it looked at is the transplanted, um, uh, did a fecal transplant from the microbiome of individuals with schizophrenia which is a major mental illness. People become psychotic, they lose touch with reality. And they transplanted it into mice who um, were germ-free. So the, these mice did not have a microbiome. And the mice who were germ-free developed symptoms of schizophrenia. 
And what I thought was fascinating was that it showed that there was some genetic material, some biological material in the microbiome of individuals diagnosed and being treated for these conditions that obviously was carried uh, through the microbiome. So that to me was very powerful, suggesting that um, you know, the, the, really pointing to the burgeoning research around the microbiome that has come out, and um, you know, there's the there's there's just so much great great work being done, like the Predict studies and all of these around the world. So, um, it's a pretty you know, pretty crazy study, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty mind blowing. Um, I would obviously this is an educational show, uh, so I feel like I would have I feel. Um, obliged to ask you this question so i feel like a lot of people listening to this they want better sort of cognitive functioning mm -hmm, you know we, we want to avoid alzheimer's dementia uh what would be some of your best tips for better cognitive functioning absolutely so you know it it starts i have to say that it it may sound boring but it does start with some basic tenets of that of of a good good healthy diet that is taking care of your microbiome. So some of those basic principles uh, just around um, how you're eating, prebiotics, probiotics, um, types of fats, all of that becomes important. Um, but basically, you know, some of the things that were important were healthy fats like olive oil, um, herbs and spices like turmeric with black pepper, cinnamon, saffron, rosemary, ginger, sage, all actually showed some good evidence in, in terms of, um, you know, cognitive function, um, things like luteolin, which is an antioxidant. The, uh, the luteolin is found in certain foods like fresh peppermint, sage, thyme, all of these helped with brain fog. Um, you know, there were studies of uh, coffee, which showed that it was beneficial to drink less than 400 milligrams a day. Um, and then it was the mind diet, uh, which, which people, um, you know, may or may have heard about, but it's, it's similar in that it's eating green leafy vegetable, colorful vegetables, which are anti-inflammatory, berries, nuts, olive oils, um, healthy whole grains, if you eat those, fish, uh, you know, fish, beans, poultry, and some red wine. So, you know, the, I think that uh, a lot of evidence came out around the mind diet. And, um, you know, there are also uh, proponents of a plant-based diet to improve uh, cognition and memory. There are some, you know, studies coming out around all of that. So I would say, stick to a healthy, basic diet, start to look at the things that you can cut back on. Um, include things like the spices, you know, there's a tremendous amount of evidence around turmeric um, and cognition. So that's, that's an easy thing you could do today. If you have that in your cupboard, if you have some turmeric in your cupboard, or you can go out and buy one, start adding that into your soup, smoothie, a tea, add a pinch of black pepper. If you don't, if you don't happen to cook, um, add it to those. But if not, you know, start, start adding a little bit more to your food. Um, and it's an easy way that you can start incorporating things. I really appreciate that. So let's, you know, sort of finish off discussing your book with the fun stuff. Everybody loves, everybody wants the magic pill, supplements. What are, what are your thoughts? Sure. So I think there's a place for supplements. And I think that, why do I say that? Because certainly in the United States, most of us are not eating a healthy diet. Um, and so, you know, there are a few things about supplements that I, that I believe. You can't, uh, you can't supplement your way out of a bad diet, just like you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. So if you're not eating healthy, taking as many supplements are not going to make up for your actual uh, nutrition. 
but uh, certain things, say if you're vegan, you know, supplementing B, vitamin B12 becomes important. If you live in the far Northeast, like I do, vitamin D is important to supplement because many of us just do not get the level of sunshine that we need um, in, in this area. So many people are deficient in vitamin D. It's very simple to, to take a supplement for that. I usually do say to people, check with your doctor, Make sure you get some blood tests or blood levels done. Um, for example, if you've started eating a vegan diet, get, you know, get a blood test before you decide to supplement or speak to your doctor about how he or she wants you to start supplementing. I mentioned saffron. Um, if someone is really suffering with depression and wants to speak to their doctor, saffron has a good amount of evidence behind it. And I cannot say, even though I love to cook with it, I cannot say you're going to get enough from your food over time. So that's, that's, a, that's a choice. Omega-3s, you know, some people don't eat seafood. Well, there are plant-based sources of omega-3s that are made, vegan sources of omega-3 pills. So that, that's a solution right there because there's a good amount of evidence for omega-3 fatty acids, improving depression, anxiety, and several other conditions. The anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects are important. So that's, you know, though there's a space, there's a place for them, but I, I want people to understand they should be talking to their doctor and they also cannot supplement out of a bad diet. So if you're eating fast food every day, <laughs> you know, taking as many supplements is not going to change that. Try to balance it up with everything else you're doing. Amazing, amazing. So the book which we were discussing today, the Food Mood Connection, uh, I'll put a link below. This is your brain on food for anyone in the US. You can just swipe up on the episode and there'll be a link below should you wish to pick up a copy. Um, at the end of all of our podcasts, we always ask, uh, so obviously we've discussed your book today. Are there any books in your life that have had a particular impact? It's interesting. People have asked me that. And um, I somehow always go back to that uh, spiritual side of things because it, it's uh, it's sort of a deep part of who I am from childhood. And the book that, that I sort of keep on my bookshelf and will refer to either on um, audio or um, is actually Deepak Chopra's The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success that has always just spoken to me and been a book that has helped me remain grounded at, uh, at times that... Uh, have have not been that cool. So, I love that. And you, I, that's never been recommended on the show before. So, a unique <laughs> answer to to for everyone out there. And my last question for you today that we sign off all of our episodes with is: What makes a life worth living? I think represent. I guess being your true self, because I think that if you can. Um, spend the time discovering who you are and what you have to bring to the world. I think that everyone has a special world, um, message for the world. Whoever you are, wherever you are, um, I think that everyone does. So if we can connect with that inner self, I think that that brings joy forward um, and, and certainly can bring joy to your life, even in the most difficult of times. So I think that's important. Beautiful. Can you tell these guys where they can connect with you and any closing messages you have for them? 
Yes, I would love for people to subscribe to my website, which is umanaidumd.com. And please follow us on social where we have a lot of fun on Instagram, sharing updated information. Right now we have a uh, bingo uh, game going on, which is actually about eating healthy foods and, and checking them off. But it's really to encourage people um, to do that and to have fun with it um, and tag their friends. And that you can find me at at. Uh, D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, which is at Dr. Please join us. Please join me. Everything which we've discussed today, guys, will be linked below, including the book and uh, Uma's socials. So, guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, and we will see you next week. Uma, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for great questions. Oh, Uma, that was fantastic. Let me hit uh, the Well, guys, that wraps up episode 158 of the Freedom Pact podcast with Dr. Nido of Harvard Nutritional Psychiatry. It was such a pleasure, such an interesting topic. You know, remember, eat your berries. <laughs> it was a fantastic episode, a real treat. Um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for your attention. If you guys haven't already, please check out the video interview of this, which is up on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. You can check out us on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Freedom Pact. If you felt obliged, we would really, really appreciate a five-star iTunes review. This really does help our show. We also have a healthy, wealthy, and wise newsletter, which goes out once per week on a Monday. Uh, yeah so guys I hope you have a fantastic weekend and we will back be back on Monday for another episode of the Freedom Pack podcast take care guys we will see you soon